Reed Johnson is an arts and culture reporter at the Times, and prior to that, from 2004 to 2009, he was an arts and cultural reporter for Latin America based in Mexico City, reporting on culture in Central and South America. So that will bring an interesting perspective. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to to Getty and to Zocalo for having us all here. And while we're all getting mic'd up and so on, I'm going to introduce this really terrific panel that we've got here for you today. Sitting to my left is Tom Anderson, who made what is probably the definitive film on the very subject that we're here to talk about. It's called Los Angeles Plays Itself, which came out in 2003. Obviously, a number of you are familiar with it. He has made numerous other films, including Red Hollywood, about the blacklisting era, and the short films Get Out of the Car and Olivia's Place. Tom has been on the faculty at CalArts since the late 1980s, and he has served there as associate dean of the School of Film and Video. He's also been a programmer for Los Angeles Film Forum. Tom, great to have you with us. Sitting next to Tom is... I'm sure a man who needs no introduction here, William Friedkin, as a director, producer, and screenwriter, has brought to the screen some of the movies that have defined our time, including The French Connection, which earned him the Oscar for Best Director, The Exorcist, and a film that I know we'll be talking about today, To Live and Die in L.A. He launched his career as a director making live TV shows and documentaries, one of which The People versus Paul Crump, helped commute a death row inmate's sentence. In many of his films, which include Cruising, Rampage, and a remake of The Wages of Fear, he's demonstrated a consuming interest in fundamental questions of justice and morality, and the often flawed and corrupt nature of both. His movies are visceral and exciting, dramatically tense and darkly humorous, and it's really an honor to have him with us here today. Sitting next to Bill is Richard Pschickel, who has for decades been one of America's most eminent film critics while reviewing movies for Time magazine. He has also maintained a superhuman level of productivity in authoring or co-authoring more than 30 books, including major biographies of Clint Eastwood and D.W. Griffith. He also has written, directed, and produced some 30 television programs, many documentaries about film and filmmakers. He's received four Emmy Award nominations. He also wrote a memoir, which I recently had the pleasure of reading, perhaps you might call it an anti-memoir, about how movies seep into our individual lives and even the lives of entire societies, called Good Morning, Mr. Zip, Zip, Zip. Please welcome Richard Schickel. And uh, finally, we have Kenneth Turan, whose voice may be the first thing that many of you, many Americans here on Friday mornings, if you happen to be turned into National Public Radio, where his weekly movie reviews are broadcast. Kenny's words in print are often the first thing that I read every morning when I pick up the LA Times off my front porch. I'm sure many of you are the same. Um, Kenny has been reviewing movies for the LA Times since 1991, and he hasn't slowed down a bit. He reviews hundreds of films every year and sees many more that he doesn't review. His obvious passion uh, for the form itself. Um, Kenny's also a lecturer at USC and the author of books including Free For All, a behind-the-scenes history of New York's public theater and its great impresario, Joseph Papp. Please give it up for my colleague, Kenny Turan. Um, 
Tom, I wondered if we could start with you, um, since we're uh, here to talk about um, the subject, which is the Getty put it, how, how L.A. imitated Hollywood and the world, or, or excuse me, the, the Getty put it as how life imitated art, which for our purposes could sort of be how L.A. imitated Hollywood and the world then imitated L.A. So we're going to look at how movies help promote Los Angeles and ideas about what Los Angeles is, not only landscapes and architecture, but fashion, styles of speech, modes of behavior, and so on. Um, because this talk is tied in with Pacific Standard Time, which deals with the post-war period of 1945 to 1980, we'll be focusing on that period, but we're going to break the rules a bit here so we can talk about films like uh, To Live and Die in L.A. and Blade Runner and, and whatever else we want to get into. But Tom, can you talk a bit about the period um, really at the start of when movies were made and some of the early images of Los Angeles that began to be produced with some of the first films, including silent films, and what were some of the icon iconic kinds of images of, of that time that started to come out of this infant industry that was forming out here on the West Coast? I, th I think the golden era of filmmaking in Los Angeles was probably the... Uh the teens and the 20s, uh, when it was possible for, before the coming of sound, for filmmakers to uh, film on the streets and uh, draw inspiration from the landscape of Southern California. Um, beginning, I think, with uh, Griffith in 1910. I, I always thought that coming to Los Angeles inspired Griffith to expand his uh, ideas about filmmaking. Uh, and of course, uh, seeing the landscape of Southern California, people all over the world seeing it inspired, did promote Los Angeles. And Los Angeles accepted early on the movie industry and appreciated its its ability to promote it at a time when it was growing very quickly and uh, was trying to grow. Uh, in, in 1928, the uh, poet, the surrealist poet Robert De Desnos wrote a, a little tribute to uh, how uh, the greatest movies came from this free city, Los Angeles. But then, of course, with the, with the coming of sound, uh, things changed, and there, were, there was little location filmmaking until the 1940s. And what movies existed that, that were set in Los Angeles were basically movies about the film industry. And, uh, of course, with the coming of sound was this great influx of writers from New York City who found Los Angeles a rather um, strange and bewildering and off-putting place. Um, there's, um, in uh, James Sanders' book, Celluloid Skyline, which is about the treatment of New York in movies, he quotes a line of Pauline Kael's the movies gave Los Angeles an inferiority complex from which it has yet to recover. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, 
An inferiority complex is probably a good thing for a city. Uh, but I think sometimes here we take it a little too far. Um, and then the, the, the city, I think, really began to emerge um, maybe with, first of all, with, with double indemnity, um, which oddly had very, very little location filming, but it gave a good sense, I think, of the, of the city. And then more in, in um, the 1950s with Kiss Me Deadly, which had this uh, ambition, I think, to show uh, all sections, all classes of the city. And, and you look at it today, and it still gives me a sense of what it was like living here in 1955, what, what the city looked like and felt like. Mm -hmm. Richard, you grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee, and you write mm -hmm. a lot in your book about the movies that impacted you <laughs> as, a, as a youngster. And well, I think, in a, you know, in broad terms, um, the movies uh, of the 20s and the 30s that took up movies as a subject were really very innocent and benign. Um, I suppose a slight sea change came with... Uh, uh, the first star is born, which they, they're about to remake it for the fourth time, for heaven's sake, you know. Um, it wasn't so hot the first time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you're right to cite uh, the immediate post-war years as a time of real change, because prior to that, you know, studio bosses were generally portrayed as benign and avuncular figures in these movies about film. There was very little sense of evil. There was a lot of sense of playfulness. And uh, even though the lurch toward tragedy in Star is Born, it, it's still a, a kind of a happy picture. It's about discovery. It's about making it um, and so forth. But after the war, and, and, and film noir influences this a lot, there, there's a sort of Hollywood noir kind of filmmaking happening. and. Um, Everything changes, you know. It's not Charles Bickford as the studio boss anymore. It's Rod Steiger, uh, and, and that's a lot different. Um, so, almost you could say, I guess there are exceptions, but you could almost say that before the war, uh, Hollywood was presented in a benign, hopeful, eager way. Uh, after the war, uh, the whole situation, you know, in movies about movies begins to sour uh, pretty seriously. Um, and now we don't really make that many movies about, uh, about Hollywood. And, and those that we do, I mean, I think a big changing point in there, uh, it also interesting and parenthetically, for the most part, movies about movies have not been commercially successful, um, which includes Sunset Boulevard. I mean, successful now, of course, but at the time, you know, it was widely regarded as, uh, you know, a, a serious deviation from the norm. Um, that's all you, you really have to say about movies. They become darker, they become noirish, uh, and they become uh, even less pleasant uh, than movies had been, about movies had been before that. Mm -hmm. 
We were hearing the previous panels um, talk about this tension in California culture between sort of the optimism of the post-war period and the good life and so on, and then the anxieties of the nuclear age and that kind of thing. And this has been a theme of all of the Pacific Standard Time exhibits, is sort of trying to move beyond that a little bit. Are, are there other ways that we can think about what has been this sort of usual dichotomy of kind of sunshine and noir or of sort of L.A. as the good life versus L.A. as this place that's always on the verge of cataclysm? Are, are there sort of other ways that we could... Well, there's a lot of interpenetration of, uh, you know, not necessarily movies about movies, but movies about L.A. Uh, you can see in some pictures in the late 40s um, the movement of noir villains, noir characters into the suburbs. Uh, you know, they're, they're suddenly they're menacing the suburban life uh, of the town. Mm-hmm. Bill, can you talk a bit, when you made To Live and Die in L.A., um, about the look that you wanted to create for the film and how that fit with the themes and the action of the movie. And thinking about that film, which came out in 1985, you were following right after an event that had attempted to sort of show Los Angeles in a very different kind of way, the 1984 Olympic Games, which was a very kind of civic exercise and civic boosterism. Um, as someone mentioned in the previous panel, coinciding with a, a particular era in a, American history where we had a California governor president of the country. Can you talk about your film and, and the look for the city that you were trying to achieve? I'd be happy to do that, Reed, but I'd like to say a couple of things in Great. relation to what Please. I just heard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> First of all... The, Some of the best films I've ever seen were made around here by Buster Keaton. I mean, if you, everything that we've done in the sound era has not even approached the quality or the daring or the inventiveness of the Buster Keaton films. I was fortunate in that I didn't see Buster Keaton's films before I started to try to make chase scenes because I would never do a chase scene after seeing stuff that Keaton did in five or six films that I'm aware of. And they, he acted in them, directed them, and uh, uh, he, uh, all, they were mostly all his ideas. They're absolute brilliance. But the fact is that uh, if it wasn't for an accident, um, there might not have been a Hollywood as we know it, you know, with the studio system. Because in 1913, uh, Cecil B. DeMille was coming out from New York where he had a film company with uh, Adolf Zucker and I believe Goldfish or Samuel Goldfish. They were making movies on the East Coast. They had this idea to do a Western. And so DeMille got on a train uh, and went to Prescott, Arizona, because he had heard that the weather was perfect in Prescott and the terrain was perfect to do a Western. And this was going to be the first big feature Western. It was called The Squaw Man. And DeMille got off the train in Prescott and it was raining. It, it happened to be raining, and he immediately cabled his partner saying, Prescott, no good. Uh, heard ab- a- a- about a little town further to the west called Hollywoodland. Uh, would like to send someone to see if we can find a barn. Uh, 
And they found a barn, a working barn that was for rent at Selma and Vine. <laughs> and uh, they rented it for $75 a week and shot the Squaw Man there, which was a huge success. And then they built a studio very close, which became Paramount Pictures. Um, having said that, I'll make the leap to, to live and die in L.A. Uh, because as it happens, there is a connection. And that is this. The building where the Squaw Man was shot uh, was on the Paramount lot for many years. I think it's now a, a Hollywood museum over on Highland mm -hmm. somewhere. But that building was hollowed out and it was the Paramount gym. And it had a great steam room, and there was a great guy there who used to do massages. His name was either Perry Orlando or Orlando Perry. He didn't know, and, and we didn't know. We'd call him Perry Orlando. And it was in the, it was in the steam room at, at the Paramount Gym, which was the building where they shot the Squaw Man, that I met the producer of The French Connection, and he told me this story, and it sounded interesting, and I, uh, you know, that's how I came to do that film. Um, so, but to live and die in L.A., I did not want to be a clone of the French Connection. I, I wanted, first of all, not to shoot in any places that I had seen before on film to any great extent. So we shot that film off the beaten path, the Vincent Thomas Bridge, the Terminal Island section of the freeway, Wilmington, 18th and Temple, which was the home of the Crips and Bloods. And uh, only one scene was filmed um, in sort of mainstream uh, Beverly Hills or Los Angeles. That was the opening scene at the Beverly Hilton. But I wanted a different sensibility. I wanted to reflect what I had seen when I first came out here, which was largely slick, sun-bleached freeways and uh, uh, reflective surfaces and nothing that had any kind of a permanent feeling to it whatsoever. I came out here from Chicago and in 1966 and it, Los Angeles was, had less in common with Chicago than did Berlin or Paris. <laughs> It was a peculiarly different, it was like the moon to me when I first came out here. And I drove all around the city and I remembered those locations and used them in To Live and Die in L.A. They were not part of mainstream Los Angeles at all. Kenny, can you cite some other films picking up on what Bill has just been talking about that have really given us a different view of L.A., neighborhoods that maybe are less familiar, you think maybe of... Charles Burnett's film, The Killer of Sheep, um, any other number of movies that have changed the image, the, the kind of prevailing commercial image of Los Angeles that has gone out to the rest of the world over the decades? I mean, one that I think of, even though I don't know if it really changed anything, but one that I, I think of because I just saw it again recently is Point Blank, which uh, John Borman shot down here. I think he, you know, it's just... I, the first time I saw it, I didn't know the city as well as I do now. I wasn't living here, and there are scenes in Santa Monica. There are scenes along the Palisades. There's a use of the Huntley Hotel, which is still there. There's the stuff shot under the freeways. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I remember the first time I saw it, I just felt really kind of arrested by. I felt this is a way of seeing the city. 
I think maybe what we're all saying is that this is a much more, you know, one of my thoughts about Los Angeles in general is that it's a hidden city. You know, a place like New York is a very obvious city. You go to New York, you can figure out where to go, what to see, what's worth doing. Everything about Los Angeles, you have to know about. You show up, you don't know where to go, you don't know why people want to live here, you don't know what's interesting. <laughs> no, I think it's true, but I think if you live here, we all know why we want to live here, that's why we, we're here. I don't. You don't? <laughs> uh, you've always been that way, Richard. Yes. So. Get the ticket. <laughs> yeah. You can Take leave and make more room for the rest of us. <laughs> I think you could, you could, first of all, the best film I've ever seen about Hollywood by far is The Bad and the Beautiful. Oh, yeah? I think that's an absolutely great film that's as honest today about how the Hollywood system works, I mean, under the radar, as, uh, and I think it, the performances what, are great. What do, you, what do you admire about it? What does it have to say that's so different? Well, there's so many, first of all, it, it, it's the Kirk Douglas character, who's the lead, who plays a, a producer very much in, in the mold of somebody... Um, you, you know, the legendary producers. And it deals with how he got to be who he was. And that was by backbiting his partners and by uh, using people uh, and, um, and, and then discarding them. But uh, he happened to be brilliant. He also happened to be a genius producer and he got the best out of people. He, uh, he would, uh, the Lana Turner character was a bad drunk and she thought she was in love with him, um, but he didn't love her and yet he, he forced her to give a performance that put her on top. So it was about the thin line between good and evil that exists in people like that, like Zanuck and Selznick. These were tough guys, but they knew their business. They knew their business in ways that the people who run the studios today don't. Those guys were real producers. And the guy in um, the Kirk Douglas character in The Bad and the Beautiful is a filmmaker who winds up running a studio and then losing it. And then he has to go back to all these people whose careers he affected so profoundly. That's what's significant about that movie. They all hate him, but at but, the end of the movie, they all come back to work for him. Or they're, they're, they may. Yeah. You know, it ends it on the telephone where they're all to. listening to yeah. him because he knew his stuff. And the guys who built the city as film directors, they started often as prop men, like John Ford was a prop man, and so many of the other filmmakers that didn't come over from Europe, but that were local. They knew the business from the ground up before they became directors and producers. Mm -hmm. And I think The Bad and the Beautiful reflects that. Mm -hmm. Also, there's this incredible uh, passage in it that I learned a great deal from um, about the use, uh, about how to make a low-budget horror film like, <laughs> like the, the Val Luton films. Yeah. And there's this one scene... There's a lot of Val Luton. There's a lot of Val Luton, and they make a, they're making a film within this film, and uh, it's going to be a cheap horror film, and the, uh, the prop man and the makeup artist bring them a lousy uh, gorilla suit or a monster suit, and it looks awful. And the, and the Kirk Douglas character looks at it, and he and the director, played by Barry Sullivan, they sit around, they're depressed, and then 
Douglas says, what is the most frightening thing to an audience? And the other guy says, the dark, darkness. He says, not showing the monster, but keeping the monster hidden in the dark. And he illustrates that. He turns off all the lights and he shines. You just see one light and you see his face and you realize that they could... And they discover that by not showing a stupid um, a gorilla mask, they could frighten people even more. And, and I think that's the best lesson I've ever seen about what makes a successful horror film. The retention of the, the monster. The monster that's in people's minds. It's why radio was such an effective medium, dramatic radio. The most frightening stuff I remember as a kid was listening to Inner Sanctum and Suspense and these great radio actors and sound effects. You never saw it. You never saw the monster or the killer except in your mind's eye. And that's illustrated in that film, The Bad and the Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Can I? We, we, we've touched on... Uh, can I comment on that? Oh, please, absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Being a little more of an outsider to Hollywood, uh, uh, I've always thought that uh, movies about Hollywood are kind of like movies about war. They all claim to be uh, anti-war movies and they all claim to be anti-Hollywood movies, but they all end up romanticizing Hollywood or war. So to me, the only exception, and I guess my favorite of the Hollywood movies would be Burn, Hollywood, Burn, an Alan Smithy film. <laughs> uh, because it's directed by Alan Smithy or Arthur Hiller, who actually is the only person in the film who emerges from it with any dignity. But it's a film in which everyone is obnoxious and irredeemable. <laughs> Well, it was made by Joe Esterhaz. Yeah. And as you know, there is no Alan Smithy. That's the name that directors use when they want to take their name off a film. There is a, a, a way to do that. There must be a director's credit on every film, according to the Directors Guild, even one that the director disavows. And the name that's used is Alan Smithy. Okay, so we, we've touched on film noir, we've touched on horror, we've touched on some of these other genres. Tom, I wanted to ask you about uh, disaster films and Los Angeles, since there have been so many made here. Do we own the record? Has L.A. been blown up on screen more than any other place, or does Tokyo have us beat? Mm -hmm. Are we the champs in that? And, and how, has, how have the movies kind of created this idea of L.A. as a kind of tabula rasa where things are being destroyed and then can be rebuilt as well, um, fitting in with this kind of image we have of Los Angeles as a very impermanent place that's always kind of refining itself. Yeah, like in a cartoon, huh? Maybe. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I got chastised the other, well, recently for uh, saying that I enjoyed seeing Los Angeles destroyed in movies. Um, why do you? And ex I like to see things blown up in movies. <laughs> I, Don't you a, find that romanticized? Uh, 
Yeah. Go ahead. It's, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's a it's boy a thing. Well, well the, the basic joke about Los Angeles is it's an incredibly unstable place. You know, I mean, you know, it's all it can all be blown away in the next five minutes. Uh, and uh, yet, most of these movies, the disaster movies about L.A., they end on a note of rebuilding, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, the impermanence is impermanent. I mean, in other words, uh, it's going to come back, be bigger and better than ever. It's still on a fault line. So, so it could be blown away, you know, the next year. But uh, I think... I think that the instability of, of Los Angeles is an important element in romanticizing it. You know, the idea is it is a complex, major city, but it's also almost alone, well, maybe Tokyo, uh, is almost alone in being a city that is inherently unstable. Um, and that is one of the things uh, that is attractive about the place. Um, you know, we mostly don't think that when the big one comes, it's going to hit us. It's going to be over there somewhere, uh, <laughs> um, which, which is a nice fantasy to entertain. But uh, I, think, I think it's important to understand that Los Angeles, for all its stability, seeming stability, for all its, you know... Uh, it's here, it'll be here forever. I think it's, it, it is nice to reflect on the fact that it is not such a place. Uh, and um, it gives, <coughs> it gives whatever frisson there is to Los Angeles, you know, the notion that it can be blown away. Uh, I never thought of it that way, Dick. <laughs> and, and certainly not in my time. Yeah. You know, I think what you're saying is you hope that you won't be here when that happens. Yeah, but, I, I hope to be in Europe. But people always... <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> try, try Italy or Greece. Uh, I don't want to go to those Which places. I just came back from. But uh, you, you must love the last days of Pompeii then, because, uh, you know... They also historically thought that they were invulnerable because, you know, there was a, a volcano eruption at Pompeii and then they rebuilt the city right on top of it and then that's the one we talk about, that second eruption. So, uh, you know, no, I don't want that to happen. And what? I, Which? What, the destruction the of, the of Los Angeles. I don't believe that it's any more unstable than anywhere else. I really don't. I mean... In oh, fact, that, that's nonsense, Bill. No. <laughs> All right, tell me, tell me uh, what is uh, less unstable. Milwaukee. Well, I think one thing, one thing I wanted to say, I mean, because it's a film that's been mentioned before, but one of the things that I like, that I see, you know, about uh, Kiss Me Deadly is the scene at the end where... Literally, it's like the world is going to end first in Los Angeles. It's not yeah. that it's even more unstable here, but that this is the place that people want to see go away. And it's just a, a, <laughs> a wonderful cataclysmic image, you know, that I, you know, kind of shakes me up every time I see it. So, I mean, I think there is 
I think some of this is kind of a filmmakers feeling that there's a hostility towards Los Angeles and that audiences want to see it blown up. And, and something you were saying, Tom, too, I mean, as a, a film scholar and just, just one Go comment ahead, sure. on our instability. Okay. The thing is, it's, it's the termites that will destroy everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Inevitably. <laughs> well, that'll start in Africa, because that's where most of them are. A lot of them seem to have gotten to my house. <laughs> yeah. Try New Orleans. <laughs> Try New Orleans. Have you ever seen the little steel circles in the streets that are termite traps in New Orleans? Do they work? Yes, they work. Sure. They're all over the streets of central and downtown New Orleans. Why don't we have those here? I don't know. But they, they, <laughs> they put stuff in them that attracts termites, and they're sealed on top, and the termites never make it out. Uh, now, you know, there's, there's a city that has been destroyed. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, as has San Francisco you know, on a few occasions. Yeah. And, and, but there is so much to recommend them that people still live there and love them. Well, the, the San Francisco is a city, the, the movie with Jeanette McDonald and everybody, the whole place goes away in an earthquake, and it ends with an upbeat number where they're all rebuilding the city. Oh, it's the way to end. <laughs> what do you want? Every yeah, bunch I want... of funeral caskets going by? <laughs> Absolutely. Of course it ends with Jeanette McDonald singing. It's a Jeanette McDonald movie. That's true. Gene Kelly is singing in the streets of Paris while they're still recovering from World War II. That's true. Tom, we were uh, talking. <laughs> Anybody got a transition? <laughs> we were talking backstage a little bit about... Um, both being Silver Lakers, which is a place these days where it seems you can't walk out the front door without tripping over a film crew. And I wondered if we could talk a bit about this aspect of, we all live here in LA, we go to movies, many people make their lives in the movies, and just sort of our own experience of being part of that process in some ways, um, whether we're actively participating or who knows, we might be in a crowd shot at Dodger Stadium. We, you know, walking along the Santa Monica Pier. Any thoughts about how that conditions just our experience of life here and sort of viewing ourselves through this kind of scrim of the movies? Oh, I don't know. I, I kind of like seeing my neighborhood on film when it happens, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I don't, otherwise, I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful an novel answer. called The Movie Goer in which um, the reality of the novel is redeemed by the fact that a character in the novel is walking along the street and William Holden is coming down the street. And somehow that puts the fantasy into the reality and the reality into the fantasy. And I think that's you know, something that people in Los Angeles kind of hope for, think about, mm -hmm. you know, that you can be stopped at a stoplight and in the car next door is a movie star. Um, it puts a spring in your stride. Which movie star? <laughs> I mean, who, who, who today gets you off that way? 
You mean if you see Leonardo DiCaprio in the next car, you're gonna <laughs> I'm not talking put a spring in your stride? I'm not talking about you and me. Oh no, it's them. Uh-huh. No, I the one thing I think that has come out so far from what's been it's impossible to generalize about this place. And I think that one of the great things about it is the the tremendous almost casual blend of every imaginable kind of person. I just came back from Florence, Italy, and every face you see in Florence is white, you know, and and uh, that's it. Uh, There are a lot of tourists, of course, but in Los Angeles you have this casual blend of gay, straight, black, white, Asian. If you walk on the UCLA campus today, it looks like an Asian campus. Mm-hmm. I think more than 50% of the students. And some movies that were being made even 20, 30 years ago were forecasting that reality about Well, that Blade was, Runner did Blade certainly. Runner, classic Blade Runner is the best see, film I've seen about Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Obviously in a, in a ironic or satiric or uh, in, in a kind of prophetic <clears throat> way. Mm-hmm. I, I see more of Blade Runner going on than anything else. But uh, uh, the but, giant but around the world, and, yes, okay. you know the giant jumbotrons and and all of that, and, uh, but also the 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 bad air. The the main for- forecast of Blade Runner was, you know, people would have to go live off planet because the air was so bad here. That that's an absolutely great movie. But I don't think you can generalize. Uh, you you know, I mean, the city is broke. I guess it's what. $3 billion in debt, we just found out. When I came to Los Angeles, the Cal State school systems were free. You could go to school for free and all over California. And now the rates are constantly being raised and students are rioting, you know, as we speak. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I think I have never noticed... Uh, more of a dissolution of the, 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 the tremendous blend of, of people than, than what I see going on now. So some of the luster has gone off of California and Los Angeles. Has some of the luster gone off of movies as well? That seems to be, you know, judging by um, the decline in, in movie attendance. Thank you. Um, is there a relationship between the two? Movies make more money today than they ever did, but that's because the dollar buys less and they charge more for 3D. But more people saw movies in the 40s. Absolutely. And in the 50s, many more well, people, the, millions the, the more. Biggest, the biggest year in movie history for box office was 1929-1930. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was 90 million tickets a week. Mm. At about 15 cents a ticket. And, that's true. And, and movie production itself has shifted away from L.A. We're seeing um, all kinds of things that used to be done here now are done all over the world. Well, mostly they're done here now because people enjoy living here. But you can film anything anywhere in a, in a small room now using computer-generated imagery. You can film convincingly inside the Taj Mahal or inside uh, um, uh, the Papal Palace, uh, you know, or the, the Vatican itself, and uh, in a little room. But they still make a lot of films here, even though there are tax credits given in other cities that don't exist here. 
you know, you get a 30% tax credit to film in New Orleans, 30% in Illinois now, uh, in, in uh, New Orleans, Canada, all over. But people in the, people in the movie industry li love living here. You know, if you, for example, have some money, to spend, this is a tremendous place to live, you know? And I miss uh, um, other places because of the seasons. That, that's the only thing that bothers me about Los Angeles is we don't have really a seasonal thing here. But it's just two hours drive from here to get up in the snow, you know? Um, but, but the reason films are still made here is no longer because of the great weather, you know, or, or building sets because we have these giant sound stages still. So, and then, of course, most of the television is made here. So in the years to come, is the world culture going to be coming out of movies that get made increasingly in Shanghai or in Mumbai or in Berlin? Or well, no, you know, well, <laughs> it doesn't make any difference where you make the movie. The sensibility is a Los Angeles sensibility primarily. And uh, so it, 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 it is of no consequence where they make the movie. Yet you're perfectly right. You know, people like living here. They have a community. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody knows everybody. Uh, so it's convenient and, uh, to make the headquarters of movie making here. But that's largely an accident. You, you mentioned DeMille. But there were people here before him. D.W. Griffith was actually here before, uh, sure. before DeMille was. And uh, Keaton. And, and, and lots of people. Chaplin. Chaplin, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so the, the, the point is that it's an accidental capital, you know, uh, based initially on weather, which is not particularly a factor anymore. Uh, but the accident of movies being here uh, just continues. Yeah, well, why not do it here? You know, I mean, what, we're going to move the whole studio to Chicago? Uh, no, we're not. We like the lifestyle. Uh, we like the community. And, uh, but they do film on location of now. Of course, yeah. More and more than well, ever. Naturally. <laughs> Unless it's a futuristic film or you know, something about the I, past. Well, also, I was just uh, in, in Sofia, Bulgaria, they have just put together an enormous studio where they're shooting uh, Expendables 2. And one really? of the things that they have done there is they've gotten like the world's biggest New York street. So <laughs> it's cheaper to film a New York street in Bulgaria than to film it here or to go to New York. You know, it's blocks and blocks and blocks of New York films. God, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would just like the money you saved if you were the producer. Yeah. But is it authentic? It looked pretty um, good. Yeah, yeah. As, as authentic as the New York street sets probably. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the back lots here. Mm -hmm. Most of that's being used for television. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you said struck me about the moviegoer and the guy who sees William Holden and yeah. suddenly the fantasy has become real. I think there was a time when people felt that way about movie stars. To some extent, they still do, but not TV stars. No. You no, know, absolutely. the TV star you you see every week in your home and. So you, you sort of get used to him or her. But the movie star was always seen less often and was therefore a mythic figure on a gigantic screen. You know, I, I always get a kick out of seeing movie stars in the street here. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, mostly, mostly what's, because what's your, yeah, they're, they're always shorter than you expect them to be. <laughs> I saw Charles Bronson and I was thinking, I could take this guy. <laughs> well, now that's probably true. Well, the wonderful thing about a movie star on the street is, you know, this, this distant figure is suddenly just a guy standing next to you. And, you know, James Cagney wrote a, a poem about seeing Humphrey Bogart in the car next to him picking his nose. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Jim got off on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, though, you can't shoot anything anywhere. I think, uh, I think a sense of place is really important in, uh, in filmmaking. I think, it's still a, I think it's still an art form that depends on this existential link with reality. Well, does that mean that... Um, Los Angeles is the most basic reality that movies have. That, uh, you know, because lots of pictures that are ostensibly set in New York or somewhere else, they're set in an in a urban location right in Los Angeles. I mean, you know. Well, is it, Sophia, Bulgaria. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, well, I'm talking okay. about realistic movie making, not I, fantasy, not. I provide an example. Um, suppose you had shot the French Connection in Los Angeles. Would it be as good? No. It doesn't have an elevated train. Or, yeah. You know, it didn't well, have... Well, you know, CGI. Suppose you could do it with CGI. Uh, I tell you, I would not have... No, the, the films that were made before CGI occupy uh, a, a special place. Uh, and the films that have been made after CGI uh, involve a special place that we couldn't do then. If I was doing The Exorcist today, I would use CGI. In, in that case, we had to do everything mechanically. We had to achieve everything you see. And like the car chase in The French Connection, we had to do all of that in the streets with people on the streets. That was the nature of that chase. And uh, I've seen far better chase scenes than that done in films like The Bourne Supremacy, you know, and stuff that uses CGI. And they do things that we could only dream of, that we could never have achieved doing some of the chase scenes that I did. Uh, now they can do a director's wildest dreams but I frankly yeah, but don't think the films are better now. I really don't. But they're, they're certainly uh, more flexibly made. You can, you can put anything up there today. I know I there, think there's... Oh, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, there's signaling us to see if we can work in some questions, so maybe any additional thoughts we have, we can sort of weave into our responses to the answers. I'm sure people have some great ideas. <laughs> oh, yeah? About things to Thank um, you, Just Let's just, see that happen. Just let me say, though, I, I still think the car chases in uh, The French Connection and To Live and Die in L.A. are better than anything in movies today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I should... Uh... <laughs> now it's time to take questions from the audience. 
LA is sometimes perceived elsewhere in the country as being superficial. Is that because television media are, are perceived as being less serious media than, say, New York theater? Is that because television and, and, and film project a more superficial uh, idea of Los Angeles, or are we really more superficial? LA is superficial. I mean, it's <laughs> simple. Uh, I don't think so. I, I think it suits the rest of the country to view us as superficial, you know, uh, because otherwise they would be unhappy that we have good lives here, and they don't. Or I'd say the people who come here and say that Los Angeles is superficial are superficial people. <laughs> Present company excluded. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not nice here. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, that's an interesting point, though. I mean, who perceives L.A. as superficial? Uh, I mean, so a social critic of some... I mean, people love to come out here, you know, and it, it's a great place to live, don't you think? I mean, it's, there are problems. You know, my God, go to Rome if you want to see... Problems, or you know, or the superficial up until recently running everything. A guy like Berlusconi. I, I don't think there's ever been a clown like that in any in any high public office in America. There's Herman Cain. Here's, here's a guy that probably doesn't like Godfather Pizza. That's. A, <laughs> I think, I think, you know, something should be said. L.A. got, in the period it was alluded to very early in our discussion, it got a bad rap when all those writers, those one-hit wonders from Broadway and one-novel successes came out here, and it ill-suited them, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, it didn't have a symphony that was worth a damn, and it didn't have good restaurants, and it didn't have uh, all sorts of amenities that they had grown used to and they regarded as part of the sophistication and elan of New York. And I don't think Los Angeles has ever recovered from that invasion of people. You know, they come out here, they do a couple months few months on a screenplay, they'd run back to New York and tell horror stories. And uh, uh, a lot of that is, is no more. I mean, you know, the, you know, you name it, jet plane, television, everything has homogenized America so that Los Angeles is not really a bad place to live. But the, the reputation uh, continues from those very early days. There are a few people, uh, a couple of writers who came here and they found it paradise. You know, they had been living in uh, one-room flats in New York and teaching, substitute teaching in the schools for $10 a week. And they came here and they got $500 a week for writing. And they lived in a lovely place and, and it was... You know, there were flowers on the way to Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. And those people are the people you really should, in a way, listen to about Los Angeles because they were seeing it 
with an unclouded perception, you know. Uh, I remember talking once to Joe Mankiewicz, it was like 1946 or seven, and he looked up one morning, and my God, hanging over Pasadena was the first smog he ever saw. And, uh, you know, he dates the fall of Eden from that moment. <laughs> you know, oh my God, <laughs> you know, it's going to sweep over us, and we're going to have better restaurants and worse air. Um, and uh, so I, I, I do think for all my dubiety about Los Angeles, you know, that I'm a little bit imprisoned in those first impressions of those writers, you know. Well, you, there are people like Scott Fitzgerald and William Faulkner, oh. two of the greatest American yeah. novelists ever that came out here and were rewritten yeah. and never saw one of their screenplays hit the screen the way they wrote it. Faulkner did. Which, oh yeah. A couple of Howard Hawks movies, he pretty much. Uh, but, uh, well, The Big Sleep. Yeah, but you but, know, Faulkner said, is it okay if I ride at home? And they said, sure. And he went back to Mississippi. Yeah. I mean, Los Angeles is not New York, but no place is. And um, New Yorkers are still mystified. I remember uh, when he came to. Uh, cover the Democratic Convention in 2000, Tom Tamar wrote that Los Angeles isn't a city, it's a scientific experiment designed to drive New Yorkers crazy. <laughs> <laughs> which, so, it, which it is. So far, I think, if you're talking about Hollywood at all, what Hollywood did was all of the great filmmakers of the world came here. All of them. Not simply, you know, the, the German writers and directors when they foresaw the coming. Even Eisenstein came here. Eisenstein came here. To, but, <laughs> but I'm talking about, you know, the British new way, you know, with the possible exception of the French. They stayed in France for the most part. <laughs> but, but most, you know, Asian directors, the great Asian directors come here to make films. And uh, uh, why do they come here? You know, there are various reasons, not the climate. It's not that they think they're going to be destroyed in an earthquake or something. But the... The institution. The institution and what's available to them, the tools available to them, mm -hmm. is what attracted in world film. In all the other world capitals of film. You know, the studio is little places around. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there's not this vast operation you know, that, that really encourages people. Mm -hmm. Let, let's get in another question. If we the previous panel talked about how Southern California exported this image of the ideal place to live across the country and around the world. And yet I, I've heard today uh, that there's hostility toward Los Angeles. And I also heard some defensiveness about the hostility toward Los Angeles. Is there a self-esteem problem? And why <laughs> is that? <laughs> you know, I'm always thinking that I'm actually happy when people are unhappy with Los Angeles because it means, I really, it means that they won't come here. Yeah. You know? Who needs any more miserable people? <laughs> Being that we are in a museum and I work at LACMA and that we're hoping to get finally a museum of, of motion pictures um, and hopefully you'll contribute to it. Um, but I think also what made the medium so interesting was the, this fluidity. 
But at the same time, now we seem to be getting some permanence to it. Um, I'm just wondering what you think about that. Why you haven't been able to pull off a museum all these years? I think the whole city is a museum. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, there is scarcely a corner in the city that you haven't seen in a movie. Uh, Billy and hundreds of others have exploited it. Um, there is a sense that, you know, this city, it's not true, of course. I mean, there should be a museum of aerospace. But uh, this city is, you know, oddly enough, after all these years, built on this fantasy. And uh, it includes seeing a movie star on the street. It definitely includes seeing crews and so forth, filming all the time. I, I have a feeling that, you know, people don't really feel the need for movies. They feel need for repertory theaters so they can see the great Buster Keaton, for example. But they don't feel a real need for museology uh, about movies in Los Angeles. I'd like to continue on that subject. I, you know, the main reason why it's going to be very difficult to establish a museum culture of movies is because of the DVD and the Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. Every, virtually every, great movie ever made and some of the worst movies ever made are available to you to buy or to rent. And you, there was, a, when we grew up, this was not true. You'd yeah. have to go to an art house or a museum. No, or you, in my case, you, you hauled out your 16 millimeter projector and you went down to a place and you rented the film. Well, that was rare. Yeah. You didn't have everything on 16 but, millimeter. Uh, it had quite a bit, actually. Well, you didn't have foreign films no. like you do no, now. No, of course. You didn't have Buster Keaton on 16. It's, I, I really appreciate that the County Museum is trying to establish a kind of a motion picture um, culture, which they, they had on and off, but it, you know... Now I think it's tougher than ever, because if any one of you wants to see a great classic movie from any country, you can buy it or rent it, uh, or you can get a recent movie, and there are a handful of art houses left that mostly run new films, very few that run the classics. Um, but, but, but they run the sprockets off about 100 movies, you know. You can always see the 400 blows. Well, you can see it in your house every night. This is night a question about something else, though. This is a museum. This is not about the screening program. This is a question about a physical museum that would have objects and artifacts. There are kind some of like of those. the Cinematheque in France has it. There's a museum in Berlin who There's has it. There's one here. At least one here. Well, they're trying to have a bigger one at LACMA. And I. Well, and the, the academy in, in was trying. With the academy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, but I think in some ways, I mean, one of the problems is that people in the business have not always taken the business seriously in that sense. I mean, I just remember to end with Buster Keaton, uh, I think we all admire. I talked to his second wife once and I said, how did he feel when his films came back into favor? And she said he was flabbergasted. They, 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 you know, as much work and effort as they put into these films, they thought they were temporary, they thought mm -hmm. they were disposable. When audiences wanted to see them, 40 years later, Keaton just was speechless. King Vitor once said to me, if I'd known this was going to happen, I'd have made him better. better yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> that's, that's absolutely right. Now, there is, you know, the people that run the studios are the ones that should have financed the kind of thing you're talking about, but they don't care. They, don't they care. still see it as a quick buck culture. It's still exactly. seen yeah. as yeah. that, and not a place to preserve the art. That's going on now at the Smithsonian, where mm -hmm. they... But, I mean, I don't care too much, I don't know how many of you do, about artifacts. I mean, I don't give a damn about Judy Garland's slippers, but, you know, from, the, from uh, Wizard of Oz... Wait a minute. <laughs> but I care a hell of a lot about the movie The Wizard of Oz to be seen as, as, as good as possible. You know, I don't... Does anyone here really need to go and stare at one of the sleds that wasn't burned in Citizen Kane? <laughs> Somebody writing a book, Bill, might want oh. to see that sled or those slippers or... What for? <laughs> it, it actually, I've seen the sled. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. It's burned. It's in Steven Spielberg's conference. That's bullshit. <laughs> what, what Steven Spielberg has is one of the... They probably made three yeah, sure. or four, and he's got the one they didn't burn. That's right. The, that ain't the I, famous but one. But that's, that's an accident. That, yeah. They're signaling well, us that we're out of time, so I think we just have to wait for the sequel. Thank you very much.